the 19th Hole Podcast presented by Golf Talk Live and brought to you by Perfect Practice Putting Mat, Yips, and Survivor Golf Tee. How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well, we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Golf Talk Live. Let the word go out from here across the land. Let Daddy Noonan uh, approve. It is Wednesday, May 25. You have found Golf Talk Live. I am Alan DePue, and I am joined, as always, by our panel of experts, Bobby Baldessari, back from the driving range. I think you were picking it last week, and we're unable to join the panel, and... Uh, we, we welcome you back, sir, as always. And the ever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? And I was trying to come up with this. Ever present. Consistent. Ever present. Yes. Andy Eidorn. The Andy, Iron Man. You? The Iron Man. Cal Ripken. And since, and since Andrew's gone, he, we don't know where he's at. Uh, Tony's the traveling golfer. We do know that. Christian's making sure that uh, uh, people in his household are happy, a.k.a. his lady. And it's, and it's Brendan's birthday. Andy, you were kind enough to, to reach out into your massive Rolodex. I just aged myself right there. And uh, you brought Mike Galeski. Andy, take it away at this point. Well, um, we've, been, we've been talking back and forth for a while about Mike coming on the show. And, and he, he thankfully agreed to do it this week. Um, Mike's a longtime golf industry veteran. He's literally worked in just about every sector this business has. Um, a few of the highlights of his career is as follows. Um, Mike's dad was a golf pro in Connecticut. Um, and Mike started dipping his toes in the, in the golf business very early on, helping his dad out in the golf shop. And um, I would say some light teaching duties, Mike. Is that fair to say? Fair. Fair, fair to say. Um, Mike moved to California to Palm Springs and became the tournament director for the Dinosaur for several years. Um, and we'd love to talk to you a little bit about that um, as we go here. Um, after the Dinosaur, Mike uh, became the director of tour operations for Callaway Golf um, through all the years of, of uh, you know, great days, great sales, great characters at Callaway Golf. Mike, Mike kind of presided over that whole tour operations there for Callaway. Um, and then after Callaway, Mike, Mike worked for the Peter Jacobson company, as well as some other small ventures along the way the last few years. And uh, Mike, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on. Well, thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be on with, with all of you experts. And I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about golf today. Cool. Well, hey, Mike, this is Bob. You know, uh, you're kind of a renaissance man with all your background with what you've done. And uh, one of the roles you had was tournament director of the old Dinosaur. I mean, that's not an easy task. That's a that's a challenging position. Um, then it recently, you know, it's leaving Mission Hills and, um, you know, it's going to be on the roll. But um, talk to us about that. I mean, all the players you met, all the history you saw um, and you know, the days of uh, Dinah, you know, just it's, it's a shame that that history has to go away. 
Yeah, it really is a shame. I mean, Bob, 51 years here in the desert, talk about an institution. And um, you know, I think there's, a, you know, change happens. And I think what Chevron is doing with the event by bumping the purse significantly and, and looking to get it back on network television or, or pluses, uh, they're going to move to Houston. They haven't announced the course. They haven't announced the date yet, but I'm sure it's all going to come together. For me coming out here, you know, years and years ago, and Andy and I have a great mutual friend that kind of brought me out to the desert and I came out for the winter. You know, I worked six weeks for the Bob Hope Classic and six weeks for the Colgate Dinosaur. And I said, wow, I love this tournament stuff. And when Nabisco took over in 1982, they really wanted to elevate the event. It officially became a major championship. And, and Nabisco was willing to, to put in a ton of money to make things happen where they would entertain really the C-suites of all of their major customers um, in the country. So these, these customers would be the president of a food chain or, or food and drug chain or Sam Walton from Walmart used to come, used to come out to the event. And we, we did massive amounts of customer entertainment events, five pro-ams, three days of tennis pro-ams, gala nights, uh, other dinner nights, et cetera, all for, for the customers. So we, we did all of that stuff. And then Thursday morning, switched hats and, and turned it into a major championship. And um, it was great experience. I was a pretty young guy at that time for many years. Uh, when I joined Nabisco, uh, the tournament director was actually Dave Marr. And uh, oh, wow. not the Dave Marr you've seen on the, the Golf yeah. Channel, that's his son. I'm talking about yeah. the, the original model of Dave Marr. And yep. he, he was a tremendous mentor to me. Uh, we, interestingly, we shared the same birthday, so maybe we had similar uh, 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 characteristics or whatever. He was funny as hell. He had no idea how to run a tournament. But he gave me all the support that I needed. And... Um, uh, I learned a ton from him, and when it was time for he, Dave moved on, and and I had the chance to be elevated tournament director, uh, it showed a lot of confidence from Nabisco, and and the model of the tournament back then is it was different than a lot of the models today, where they're out selling hard, the corporate sponsorships and hospitality tents and everything. Nabisco didn't want to let anybody else in. It was all it was their your show, their party, and. Uh, so it was, even though we had plenty of resources to do it, we had, we better well do it right for them. And as a result, it was, a, we, we pulled off some real, real feats and I'll shut up here in a minute, but obviously getting a, to work closely with Dinah, she was highly involved in the event. It was not just her name on it. And, um, you know, she would be able to draw in all kinds of celebrities that would play in the pro-am and as I mentioned, the gala uh, was a big deal, kind of wrapped up all the customer entertainment events for the week. And I, I mean, I remember one year, and we did this at, at you know at a hotel ballroom here in, in the desert. And uh, you know, one year we had Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra uh, at, at this event. So we've got 900 guests sitting in the audience, and out walks Bob Hope, and 15 minutes later, out walks Frank Sinatra. You can't buy tickets to that stuff. And um, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. And and so now to see the event, the event changed over the years as Nabisco's in, interest and then craft and then ANA and everything. It's, this happens to events. And so we're actually hopeful that we can continue something here in the desert. I'm working with Mission Hills Country Club right now to 
to probably host some kind of LPGA Legends Tour event. There's, there is some senior women's golf getting off the ground. There's the U.S. Senior Women's Open now and Senior LPGA Championship and do a couple of day pro-am and a couple of day tournament. Uh, tournament rounds, kind of a team event, we think, and, and to play it at Mission Hills. So there's been some support for that and we're trying to pull it off. And we have Dinah's family support as well. So we'll use it to help celebrate uh, you know, Dinah's commitment. You know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, Dinah Shore is in the Hall of Fame. It, it's not like she was a casual participant and lent her name to the tournament. She was beloved. She was highly engaged in everything with the LPGA for decades. And um, so uh, um, a, a really interesting and wonderful person. Well, be before we move on from the Dinah Shore subject, um, you know, I think a lot of people are a little bit um, confused as to why this all happened. And, and I think you did a pretty good job of explaining it. Um, I think one of the things that, that golf fans in general are struggling with is, you know, the dinosaur was, was somewhat like masters in the sense that it was at the same venue every year. And so people got comfortable with watching the tournament at Mission Hills and Poppy's Pond and all that. And, and it's kind of sad to see all that go, but um, I guess that's business, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm hoping it's it's not only business. I'm hoping in some way it becomes progress too. So, you know, a $2 million boost to the purse, that's progress. Network TV, they deserve to be on network TV. I'm, I can only think that they're going to play a great golf course. I hope they play a great golf course. And um, I hope they don't change too much of it as they, they begin to create their own memories and their own legacy and history with the next chapter of, of the tournament. I doubt that there's going to be a lot of connection back to Dinah. She's been gone too long. I mean, Dinah died 28 years ago. Yep. And so it's going to be hard to recreate in a brand new area something with regard to Dinah where the people, the fans and all of that don't have that connection back to those days. I mean, you, you, you drive to Mission Hills Country Club, you come down Dinah Shore Drive, you know, or you turn off Bob Hope Drive or Gerald Ford Drive. I mean, the desert here celebrates these, these people that helped really, you know, build so much here and you're not gonna have that somewhere else. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, in Houston where I am, I've I've heard literally heard this three times for three places that they're playing it at Houston Oaks, or they're playing it at um, Carlton Woods, or they're playing it at the Woodlands, um, but they just haven't announced it yet. So nobody, I mean, we're we're obviously less than a year away, and there's not been an announcement. It's kind of strange. So. Yeah, um, and, and you know, really, they announced this change last October. I know. I mean, that, and I think, as I recall, fairly early in October. So, you know, you're looking at seven, eight months here of um, a bit of radio silence on on what's going on. So, I'm sure they'll pull it together. Yeah. So, um, let's let's talk for a second about <clears throat> about your your Callaway days in specific. Um, you know, John Daly, you were there when, when they signed John Daly and, and those were, were kind of crazy, bad times, maybe some good mixed in there. Um, can you, can you riff on that just a little bit? 
Well, yeah. So, you know, John had, had, had multiple problems and all kinds of rumors about gambling debts and other addictive behavior and all of that. And, and frankly speaking, Ely, Mr. Calloway, wanted to rescue John. And he was, he was bound and determined that he could help get John back to playing great golf, that he could get him uh, on the straight and narrow type of approach. And that ultimately that investment in time and money would pay off for the company in, in the promotional value of a player like John Daly using Callaway equipment. Um, it was a good plan. There's no doubt about it. But it was, you're talking about really changing somebody and pretty hard to change people unless they, they want to change. And we had, we had some good things happen, but there, were, there was also some hard things. And, and um, it ended up being a, a pretty much strong divorce at the end. But, um, and I don't think John today believes, I would have to ask him, but, you know, believes that, that his best interest was always uh, front and center. Um, it's there's some crazy stories about things he said and things that he did. Uh, we not only provided golf equipment and some financial support to him, um, we put one of my team members um, on the road with him for a while to try to have a, have somebody to pal around with that was not the usual, you know, cronies that would end up in a casino or bar or whatever. And, um, you know, we, we tried everything. We, we, when, when things started to really slide badly with John's, he was drinking again, he was gambling heavy again. Uh, we even engaged um, some consultants that, uh, you know, helped us try to figure out what to do next in, including conducting an intervention with him, with his agent and his family and his friends and saying, John, you gotta, you gotta stop this behavior. You're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna train wreck. And you know, what's really unbelievable is that he's still going strong today. Hell, he was at, he was at Tulsa last week, played pretty good there one day. And he's got cancer now and he's got a Santa Claus beard and he's, 100 pounds overweight and he still hits it you know pure he's i'll add this on on the golf side of things he's an unbelievable ball striker it's it when i say unbelievable it's not textbook but if you listen to those shots and or you watch him nip l wedges that you know 50 yard l wedge kind of shot or whatever it's pretty sweet stuff he's got so so mike he, uh, he definitely was playing well in Tulsa. Uh, we're going to get to the PGA uh, Championship, our little recap of that a little bit later in the show. But John was definitely seen at Hooters. He was definitely seen at uh, the local casino while uh, visiting yeah. the Tulsa area. Yeah. But my question actually is going to come from a different direction. As Andy, actually Brendan first said it, dubbed me the king of segues. Watch how I'm going to work this one in, boys. <laughs> Mike talked about senior LPGA golfers. And this week is Colonial, so I have to ask the inevitable question. We're, it's the 19th anniversary of Annika playing at, uh, uh, at Colonial. What are your recollections? I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me, and I think it is to the listening audience, about everything that goes on behind the scenes of a tour, at a tour stop. But what's your recollections of, of that 
historic date? Yeah, well, it, it really started in at a, a, a Callaway outing with customers prior to the PGA show. When we were at Bay Hill and we did like a little nine hole golf outing and then Annika did a little Q&A and everything like that. And this is when there was other players that were uh, other uh, female players that were dabbling in, in playing in men's golf tournaments. I think Michelle, we had played in one or something like that. And, Somebody asked a member of the media asked Annika if she would ever consider, and surprisingly, she just like she had it planned. She just said, "Well, yeah, I, I would consider doing that." And boy, people bid on that like crazy because she was not just a player, any player doing it. She was, you know, a future Hall of Famer, multiple major championship winner. I mean, and you name it. And so she kind of surprised everybody. And so when things settled down and she made a decision to go to Colonial, I talked to her and, and I said, you know, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a circus there for you. Um, what, what can we do to make it easier? And she said, I, I don't know. And I, I said, well, why don't we all rent a condo? We'll, we'll all stay together. That way you'll have your husband, your caddy. You'll have a couple of Callaway people, me and a, another Callaway rep. We could run interference a little bit or run to the grocery store or whatever. So we all rented a condo there for a townhouse at right outside Colonial and stayed together. And, and uh, it was pretty cool. And, and the she started on the 10th hole. Thursday, she started on a 10th hole. And it was as big a crowd as they could ever fit around the 10th hole at Colonial. And you know, obviously the media requests and everybody from Golf World to the Today Show and probably TMZ there. I mean, it was, it was something. I have this really cool photo of her waiting to tee off so she's standing there. She's got kind of her palm on the top of her. She was hitting a forward off the tee, the top of the forward grip, just kind of leaning on it. And you can see her arm and all of the, you can see the hair on her arm just standing straight up. This is before she teed off. And, you know, she, she, uh, she ripped that forward when it came time to go, she, she ripped that forward. Then she kind of faked a little stumble, like, my God, I'm, I'm, I got it out of the gate here. I got it in the air kind of thing. And she played reasonably well. And um, it was, it was a, a pretty big accomplishment, I think, in, in many ways. And, and yet, in typical Annika form, she didn't need to do it again. You know, that wasn't going to prove anything to her legacy. I think she wanted to do it for fun and see how she would do, but she didn't need to go do it again. And uh, so it, it was really cool. Uh, I remember going to Starbucks with her and uh, we did the drive-through. And as, she, as her cup was handed to her on the, on the drive-through coming out, the barista inside had, uh, had written Go Annika on the, uh, on the cup. I thought that, I thought that was kind of cool, and and uh, I'm I'm in my office here. I'm looking at a uh, Go Annika button that we that we had made for uh, for that week as well, and so it was pretty interesting. And uh, I think Colonial was clearly a great place for her to to to, to try to do this because it's a golf course that it's a shot maker's golf course, and and it's not about bomb and gouge. It's uh, you got to hit golf shots. And she can hit golf shots. Absolutely. Big time, yeah. So, Mike, uh, you know, I, I know you're uh, wired in the golf industry and you've uh, part of history there with Monica. And 
because of Andy Hydeman, I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, wink, wink. Uh, but, and then to take it one step further in Alan uh, Shipnuck's recent book on Phil on page 93, you get a mention. Uh, so anything that's surprising that other stories that come out of that book or what are your uh, takeaways from Alan's book? Well, I, I bought the book right away because I'm a Phil fan. And, you know, I, I met Phil probably when, when he, I used to do some work and help out the AJGA. Uh, we actually had Nabisco when I was with the Dunn Short Tournament. Nabisco was sponsored a, an AJGA event at, at Mission Hills. And Tiger played a couple of years, maybe only one year. Phil played a couple of years. And, you know, a lot of other characters that we've seen from Bobby May to Keith Sabarro to others that are mentioned in the book. Uh, were also players. And so I think Alan did a really good job of uh, kind of a, if you didn't know anything about Phil, taking you through everything from junior golf to ASU to, to Coach Lloyd to, to Bones and, and a lot of other things there. And I think he did a pretty good job. I think that the salacious stuff, the Saudi stuff, pretty much came out in ex excerpts before the book was even, even launched. Um, there's a few things that that they, uh, you know, I, I, I was not surprised that they were in there, but, um, you know, like the black baby rumor and, you know, some of this other stuff seemed a little, little but I, I think there's a lot more to this story. And um, I don't really think that, that this book is, is that damaging in any way to Phil. And if you're a Phil fan, you might even understand what makes him tick a little bit better now. I mean, he's a gambler, not necessarily a money gambler. He's a gambler hitting a shot on the 13th hole at, at, at Augusta through trees to knock it on the green. He's, 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 you know, it talks about his, one of his U.S. amateur victories or his U.S. amateur victory conceded a guy's 40 foot putt for par because you know, he, he was had his eight footer for birdie and he figured he was going to make it. And he did kind of thing. So that's him. And, and that, that's what he does. And he's a, Phil is a complex guy. He's very generous in a lot of ways. He's got a big ego in other ways. And I've never seen him be anything, but really nice to people. And so even through all of this turmoil that's going on in his life right now and, and i wonder how'd you get caught up in all of that phil but you know whatever i'm i'm still a fan you know i i i started the book and and i was i was a little bit um surprised a little bit but but kind of happy to see the way shipner kind of went at it because in the beginning of the book he gave a good story a good phil story followed by a bad Phil story, followed yeah. by a good Phil story, followed by, and, and that was kind of the way he was going about it was, you know, hey, here's- There was this. balance. Yes, yeah. totally. I thought, I thought that was really interesting. So, um, you know, Mike, uh, all the years you worked at Callaway, um, I mean, there, you were responsible for the PGA Tour, <clears throat> senior PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour, the- Hogan and Nike tour as they were known that in, in that time. Um, and then the probably European the, web, tour, the, the European Japanese tour. tour. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, God, all the characters, all the, all the people, all the friends that you made, I'm sure. Um, who, who are some of the, the kind of the, the best people, best stories, funniest, strange, weird things that, that 
you can kind of think of that happened during those years with, with some of those people? So I joined there in the fall of 1993, and within about two and a half weeks, we, we signed Paul Azinger. And this was the first big PGA Tour star that was going to play and represent Call Callaway, play the equipment and represent Callaway. And Paul had had good success with the, the original Big Bertha driver. So it was a you know a, a big step up and you know more money than they had ever paid any other player before or whatever. And a month after we get him some golf clubs and everything, he gets he gets diagnosed with cancer. So he's got to go through the the whole chemotherapy and everything like that. And I remember Ely walking into the boardroom and and telling us about Paul's diagnosis and 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 in tears telling us about it and made a commitment right then and there in front of everybody that we would continue to pay Paul everything that we agreed to pay him, regardless of whether he was playing golf actively right now. And that was the type of support that Ely wanted to, to, uh, uh, Ely wanted to, uh, to show, but there's a couple of other funny Azinger stories. So, um, they're both around wag wagers, but they're not like gambling stories like Mickelson necessarily. But he was in Carlsbad. We got to play at my club, uh, Del Mar Country Club, and we got five of us playing, and we're playing a wolf game. And gee, you know, come to the 18th hole, Zinger's down to us. And uh, so he wolfs it. He's going to double this, double that, everything like that. And uh, one of the guys that the, the, the four against one there, one of those guys makes birdie. So doubles it again. So Paul loses 80 bucks times four players. He's not happy. Um, by the way, do I, uh, how careful of my language do I need to be here? Cause you don't need to be. <laughs> okay. So anyways, we, we go, we go into the, to the bar and Paul didn't drink. We go to the bar where he's having a Coke. I'm having a beer and we sit at this little table. There's a deck of cards on, on, on the table. And he, he picks up the deck of cards, takes them out of the box and says, okay, asshole, one round of, uh, one hand of gin for 20 bucks. So he deals the cards. I go first, I pick up a card, I put it in my hand, and I lay down gin. And he throws the card at me. And I said, Paul, I, uh, I think you've got to find another game. I mean, obviously, you're not very good at golf. You lost $320 and you suck at cards. So, you know, and he just stormed, stormed out of there. If we have time, I'll tell you another quick story. So we're at Augusta. He's played a practice round. He's come off the, the 18th green and he is just chirping about how much money he won and, and everything like that. And it's, it's myself, Roger Cleveland and Dick Helms that are standing there. And Paul comes up to us and he's, he takes this lot of money out of his, out of his, his, his pants pockets. And it's just a big handful. And he goes, man, I just roasted him today or whatever. And, and Helmstetter was always a pretty cool guy. And he said, hey, Paul, I'll tell you what, why don't we throw both of our money clips on the ground and the one who's got the most money keeps them both. And Paul bites like a bass on a, on, a, on a rubber worm kind of thing. And so Paul, Paul starts counting the money and he, da, 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 he kind of 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 500, $6,100. Wow, that's pretty good. He had a good day, didn't you, Paul? 
So Helmstetter pulls out his money clip that instead of being this big fat thing is about maybe a half an inch thick or less. And he starts with 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 200, 300, 800, 1300, 2300. He had $500 and $1,000 bills. He stopped <laughs> counting at 10,000. Oh my God. And, and he did not take Azinger's wad. He should have. <laughs> he should. But you know what? It takes a lot to, to get one up on, 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 on Zinger, but Dick got him really, really good. <laughs> really good that day. Everyone carries, you know, five, 10 grand in cash around. Come yeah, on. all the time. In $500 bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I carry them around in $2 bills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's, yeah, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. And, and, uh, but the, you mentioned, you know, uh, there's been so many players that, that I got to know really well. Um, through those years, I spent a lot of time. I mean, Rocco Mediate is one of the most generous guys you'd, you'd ever be around. He would take our our tour reps and our techs and everything out to dinner to like a Morton's restaurant once a month. Then you've got other players that, you know, wouldn't buy anybody a Coke. So, I mean, he had all kinds of people. Olin Brown, probably the longest tenured Callaway staff professional. He was there when I got there in 93. So he's coming up 29 30 years of being there. Obviously, Annika, she was so shy back in the day. She, when we signed her, she had conditional status on the LPJ tour and she didn't use a driver. Things wow. changed pretty rapidly. And, and I was in, I was actually in St. Andrews in, I guess it was 95 when she won her first event, which was the U.S. Women's Open. And I can remember watching her you know, win that, sitting in a, in a pub in, in St. Andrews and, uh, you know, still stay in touch with her obviously. And, um, but just so many other people like Michael Campbell, you know, I mean, here's a guy who, what he did at Pinehurst on, on that weekend was unbelievable holding off everybody to win. And then, you know, a ton of struggles of the golf gods, maybe, uh, just treating him a little rough and, you know, really couldn't play. He's trying to make a comeback on the champions tour and, and the, the European senior tour. In fact, I know he's playing at the, at the senior PGA championship this week up in Benton Harbor. And, uh, you know, the guy's got a great golf swing. I was going to say, Mike, when he, when he used to get it going, he yeah. was, he was fire. Oh yeah. And you know, he, fire and ice. he didn't hit stuff offline. You know, I mean, that's what that golf swing delivered for him. It's like, to me, he always played a lot like Nick Price. You know, you never saw Nick Price in the woods, right? You know? And you know, Nick maybe didn't putt real good every week, or maybe had some you know other other ways to make bogeys. God knows there's a million ways to make bogeys, but you know, Campbell was was a really really quality ball striker, and uh, so he's a happy guy today. He lives in Spain, and uh, and is just itching to get back in a competitive golf. So I, I hope he does. Um, but just, uh, you know, a lot of really, really interesting people. Um, Mr. Callaway had the grand idea to sign Arnold, Jack, and Gary. And we signed Arnold. Um, we signed Gary. And Jack was visiting. And so um, Jack was uh, at the test center and 
which was where we, you know, custom fit pros and they demoed clubs and track men and all, all that kind of stuff was down there. And we specked out at the clubs that he brought with him. And I, we noticed that his six iron and his seven iron were the same loft. Now that's kind of interesting for the golfer of the century to have two clubs with the same loft. So at some point when the moment was ripe, I said, Jack, you know, your seven iron is as strong and this is the same loft as your six iron. How do you, how do you, did you know that? I mean, how did, how do you do that? He goes, you know, I, I thought it was going a little far. I just hit it easier. That's all. You know, <laughs> and, you know, I wouldn't have expected that out of Jack because the, we built him some Callaway clubs to try and his club maker, renowned club maker, Jack Wilcotti, actually each club is the specs are in written up in almost a paragraph of what what the trim specs are on the butt end and the tip end of, of and what shaft and what grip diameter and grip thickness that he would measure with calipers and I mean all kinds of stuff and then to see a six iron and seven iron the same long but you know we never did sign Jack and uh, because he visited when Mr. Callaway was sick. If you don't recall, Mr. Mr. C died with uh, with pancreatic cancer in 2001, and so I I picked Jack up at his hotel and we were going to dinner, and he it's me and him in the car, and he says, uh, "So Mike, tell me what's really going on with Ely," and I had to tell him the truth, and he told him about pancreatic cancer. He goes, "Man, it's that's that's just awful," and you know never never came to fruition. So we don't know what Mr. Callaway had in mind to to utilize these three, the great the greats of golf to, to help move the needle for, for our company. But I can only imagine it would have been something really, really good. And uh, um, so it was, uh, it was some, some great times meeting those, those golfers. And as the son of a golf pro, you know, to, I, I mean, people that, you know, I respected and I looked up to, and I, I, I've had to pinch myself that that I was there. I mean, Arnold would fly over from, well, oftentimes in the Palm Springs area here, it was about a twenty-minute flight over to Carlsbad, and we had a, there was a uh, Carlsbad Airport is really adjacent to the Callaway Test Center there, and so he'd fly over, we'd pick him up, he'd come demo clubs, hit balls, hang around, and wait for whatever clubs to get built for him and then he'd you know throw him in a jet and then then he'd leave and and um i can remember one day on the putting green at, at the test center it's it's me and arnold and and he says to me puts his big paw on my shoulder and he says you know mike when i come to callaway here you guys you just take great care of me. it's it's unbelievable i appreciate it so so much he says tell me what can i do for you well, I was speechless. I'm dying to say, oh, I could go, I could go play around at Augusta with you, Arnold, or <laughs> something like that. But I just said, you know, just having you here is is uh, is uh, reward enough for every everything that we do. And uh, I've got other Arnold stories. Well, I don't know if that, you want that, to that's it. awesome. I, I think uh, I think we got to get on to the next segment, which is um our wrap-up of last week mike you're more than welcome to hang around and finish the show with us um thank you so much for sharing all of that um stories and and uh 
you know, fun memories and things like that, 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 you know, you've had to deal with over your career, but we'd love to have you stay on for the rest of the show. If you can. I will. Thank you, Andy. It's, it's fun talking about this stuff. I hope it comes off as sincere. And, and I would just say, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. All of these people. So it's, uh, it's uh, unbelievable for me. Thank you. Awesome. Well, you know what, what strikes, what strikes me is the, the, People that are out listening to the show and has listened to the show for you know the 15 years that first we were on the radio and now I'm exclusively on the podcast and they 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 get one thing out of or one thing out of our we attempt out of our show is we try to put people into and learn the things that that fascinate them and you sir I'm, I I jotted down your resume as as Andy was going through it. You've had a fascinating career in this, and in, in, in the area where the average golfer probably would just love to walk inside the ropes. Absolutely. Well, thank you, thank you, Alan. So, Andy, inside the ropes. Should we start on Sunday and work backwards, or where? I mean, where do you want to go, or should we ask Bob Baldessari, the son of a uh, PGA uh, golf professional? How, and and by the way, dang it! Uh, somebody asked Mike Thomas today on uh, Golf Channel um, the very question I want to ask when you when Bobby gets comes through and gets us get, gets Mike in here to talk to us. What is it like standing outside the ropes watching your son lift the Wanamaker, or just hit the shots for that matter? Yeah, it's got, I, I think it's got to be surreal. Uh... I first met Justin when he was 12 years old. We had a time meeting in GA, Kentucky, and Carolinas. I walk into Mike's uh, Harmony Golf uh, Club. Uh, you know, he's got his son there, and he goes, "Hey, Bob, this is my son Justin. He's Justin's wearing a Red Sox hat." And I said, "What are you doing with a Red Sox hat in Kentucky?" He goes, "I love the Red Sox." And uh, you know, that is in my head. Years later, so uh, I, you know, I. We've all watched our kids play sports. There's one level of that, then it goes up to depending on where they go. I mean, are you kidding me? In a major championship, and then I think the emotions of the PJ Championship, Mike Thomas, and the PJ member, I, I, I can't even imagine that. I mean, my son is going into the PGA. Uh, like Mike, my, our dad were members. I mean, um, that's always a special feeling. That's just got to be, I don't know, I don't even know if I could be breathing, but um, that was exciting to see that tournament go to that, to that playoff, um, you know, and I put this on a Facebook post in a PGA forum. I, I wish Kerry Hay got a little more or a lot more notoriety on how he sets up the course and he runs that championship with Kerry, David Charles, all the guys, Ben Rubin that I worked with when I was at PGA headquarters. They are simply unbelievable and where he was on the 18th green to get a few accolades. I really do. The guy's amazing. Yeah, I would say I know Kerry, and he is the best in the business. He is, Mike, and uh, very, very humble. And, you know, when, uh, I don't know, a lot of stories I have behind the scenes with Kerry, um, some neat stuff. And, yeah, I just, uh, I wish somebody would just acknowledge him on that green or the team because he's he is all about the team. And uh, But that was uh, – it was pretty cool how that that you know Gil Hans all the changes to the um, the golf course where I was there in 2007. I remember how incredibly wicked hot it was, um, but I didn't recognize some of the holes from 07. 
Well, I think that, I think that obviously has to do also with the the restoration work that we talked about last week on on the show. Um, I think that the takeaway I took from Tulsa was Southern Hills is is legit. It is a great big golf course. It's right out in front of you, and the players can play it. and And there's no trickery. And the only person I think was Terrell Hatton that didn't like it. <laughs> but but he doesn't like anything. So. He doesn't like he didn't like Augustus. So I mean, you know you know you're doing good if he complains. So get ready, Brookline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna ask ask you, gents, this because we've all played tournament golf, and Mike, you've been around tournaments and played, and and I saw an article that or Brendan Chambly talked about Bones Mackay and how extraordinary he was before the round and through the round, and then. I don't think it was, I saw something of an article that, um, and, and I, Mito's caddy, you know, on the 18th hole, should he have said something and kept his hand on the driver? Um, you know, it's interesting that the, at that level, how influential the caddy can be in certain crucial situations. And, you know, I was just going to throw that out. Should he have hit driver? That swing looked really, really interesting. Well, well, Bobby, my, my son, I don't mean to jump in, but, my son Andrew, who's you know not with us today on the show, but we were talking off air. He, Andrew's pretty cut and dry. He thinks Mito's caddy should be fired for not putting the three wood in his hand or demanding he hits the three wood. Yeah, I, if, I mean, what, what you, I would add to what I would sort of interrupt. What I would add to that is that if Bones is caddying for Mito, he wins. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I I have a little different take on this, right? So. I think I think Mito's end result was going to always be his end result. I think it happened on the last hole, and I think it made it more dramatic. But he's not supposed to win that tournament, right? And it's very rare that, that a person does end up pulling that off. So I think it was somewhat predetermined what was going to happen. Um, and it just, and I think, I think to, to you guys saying he should be hitting three one on 18, you know, if you've made it that far, maybe that's the decision that, that makes you, you know, kind of overcome the inevitable, which is, you know, him not winning. Um, it's just so, it's so hard to be in that situation and that swing he took, I mean, if he took that swing with a three wood, it would have gone shank right too. I mean, that, that was just such a crazy, awful, you know, like, just convulsive. Like, like, like you, can, you can say it, Andy, like my swing. Yeah. You can go, go ahead. You can say it. I've, I've yet to see it, Alex, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make that judgment later. But, no, I, I kind of think that that at the end of the day, I, I kind of think he was not going to prevail. Well, we we also we I can't believe we're five minutes into talk, talking about a recap of let's actually go back to the beginning in Thursday. Yeah. Let's talk about the real big story, which I know it should be Justin Thomas, but to quote Scotty Scheffler, "Well, Tiger's here, so nobody's talking about me." How? What's your take, Bob or Mike? I mean, what's it was sad. It was it was it was it was painful to watch. I was, and I'm sure it was painful to him to try to even play. But wow, 
Yeah, I didn't think he would go for the PGA Championship. He's won it four times. I thought he was going to rest. I thought if if not the U.S. Open, I you know maybe just wait for the 150th Open Championship at St. Andrews Symmetry. You know, could that be? You just wait. You get healthy. You really get healthy, and that's an easier walking course. And his creativity. Um, I just wondered about that. The U.S. Open, the Country Club. I played it many times. It's um, it's an unbelievable course. It's not quite the elevation changes. Yeah, I thought, I, I don't know. I just thought he might pass on the PGA Championship, but the guy's, uh, you know, he's a champion. He's got a champion's heart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll just go yeah, ahead, I Mike. Saw, uh, sorry, Andy. I, I saw some little Twitter video or something of prior to his round Saturday, he was, I think, hitting some chips or some bunker shots or something like that. And it, it showed him slip a bit and like tweak his knee did anybody else see that that well, he stepped, it looked like he stepped on a rake right or stepped on a rake or stepped funny or something like that and so i think i think saturday's round was impacted by something that happened pre-round oh uh, you mean when he was walking down the edge near the edge of the bunker and it looked yeah. like his leg kind of gave out from under him yeah yeah, yeah. so i think you know, you do something like that, that's a, a bit of a fluke thing. If that, if he doesn't do something to tweak it a little bit, you know, maybe he's got a chance on the weekend. But, or, or how about the, how about the fact that, where, which hole was it? It was somewhere on the back nine, I believe, where he's, he's got wedge from 109 and they're talking about his little hook wedge into that left-hand pin placement. And he just overcooks it left, but he also you could just see he hurt. Yeah. And it was, it was ironic. He was hitting these, these short irons and they were, they were failing him. That's the, the shot where, where nine times out of 10, you're going to use your hands more anyway, but he's slipping on the backs on the backswing or, or did you, did you guys catch that Andy? Did you? So I, I'll, I'll, I'll be, don't, don't be that guy myself. Don't be that guy. Right okay. Now. Yeah. So, I kind of think, and I love Tiger. I love him. I root for him, but I think he's a bit of a drama queen, right? So when things when things aren't going right, I think I think he tends to play up, you know, whatever's going on with his body. And and uh, he hit a lot of bad shots, a lot of poor short game shots, a lot of poor, you know, short iron shots. And I don't know. I I I tend to go there a little bit. So don't be that guy. <laughs> Don't, Don't be, be that me. guy, but you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I, I feel the same way sometimes yeah. about about TW. Yeah, and, and it's okay. It doesn't it doesn't affect how I feel about him, how I root for him. But I definitely feel that he's got a little bit of that in him. I don't. Know, did you guys see the? Um, it was interesting. And, and a friend of mine, Kelly Elbin, who I used to work with the PGA, he he had the same thought. Um, so Rory opens with 65. I mean. You know, that number five under wins, and then he just goes through the weekend. And, uh, you know, you watch him and you just go like, wow. And uh, so Kelly had the same thought process I did where usually Rory finishes and it's like, oh, it's, you know, I'm learning and this and that. And, but he stormed off. He Trunk slammed. A, yeah. And um, yep. maybe that's a good sign. Like, I mean, at some point you're like, with that talent to start at six, with 65. And wow, it's, it's kind well, of. How how about this? After five holes, he's four under. Right. After five holes on Sunday. And, you know, I don't know if he's thinking he's got to get to nine under or whatever, but 
literally he needed one more, one more. And I'm guessing that that probably hurt him more than anything, you know, kind of, kind of his emotions it probably probably ripped him up a little bit because he was right there. He was. I mean, not, not to beat the caddy thing to death here, but you know, as Mike, as you said, what a bones is on Rory's bag. You know, is that, a, is that, is that at that level razor thin? Is that the difference? Yeah, it might be, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I was really surprised that, that Rory kind of couldn't hold it together. You know, I, I, I didn't see any reason he couldn't. And we all know how, how golf is and how easy it is to, to get off track or short side yourself or wrong club or, or whatever. But I mean, Rory's got immense talent as we all, all know. And I was really surprised that he, I don't know a better word, you know, kind of unraveled a bit. So, you know, is it with the bones? I think the I think the personality of Bones and JT works. I'm not sure if the personality between Bones and, and Rory works. Interesting. Well, I know Rory started T17 in the final round. Where where was JT? Seven shots back. Yeah, but would you remember what what place that or where it was? Because I, I I I'll go back and reference Mike's interview today. Um, he, he acknowledged it. If the leaders go out there and shoot a couple under par, any of them, JT's he, he's not going to win. He's not going to even have a chance to win. He did what he needed to do, and and for his benefit, obviously, the, the leaders backed up and came back to him. And I think, you know, Andy, to your point, did, did, you, did Rory go out there and just – did he feel like he had to mount another Augusta final round charge to have a shot? I bet at the end of the day that's what – that's what got to him is that he was there. He didn't, he didn't need any more miracles after the fifth hole. He needed to play, you know, good solid golf the rest of the way. And, you know, he was there. So that's got to hurt. Yeah. That was an interesting uh, uh, visual. And, and even my wife picked up on this. We are watching the championship and my wife, Pam, when, when they put the thing up there and Justin was probably in like third place at the time, and he had 14 tour wins, and everybody else on the leaderboard had zeros. And she goes, oh, well, geez, you know, he, he's going to win because he's been there type of thing. And, I mean, that, that really struck me as uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Well, so now let's jump to – I've been on this guy's bandwagon since he, he played his way onto the PGA Tour. Will Zalatoris is oh, yeah. one hell of a talent. What yeah. a ball striker. He is now, what, seven majors in. I think every one of them has been a top 10 finish, including almost two runners. Almost all of them. Yeah, including two runner-ups. And now the sad the sad side. It, you just knew once it got to the playoff, he wasn't going to win. When, 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 he, when he doesn't drive the green on, on 17 and he has to chip it up there to eight feet, and you know JT is already on the green. you just like, okay, it's already over. It's over before they get to 18. Yeah, it's match play. Yeah. You know, is, I will say this. As ugly as it is, and I would love to know if – and I'm, I'm serious. I would love to know if his short putting stroke isn't on purpose. I mean, because his putting numbers were not bad at all. I mean, they're actually – 
I think through the first two rounds he was. Well, the first I know I know for the first round he was leading. He leading. Was, he was leading the the field in strokes gained putting. Right. Right. I did not miss a putt inside ten feet. And you know what? He missed a short one on Sunday on the back nine, but he made he made a couple of really really good putts. Well, that so, putt he made on eighteen was incredible. Sweet. It's seventeen as well. Seventeen yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so is it the media or is it, is it in, is in Zalatoris' head? That's the question at this point. I, I don't think so. I, I mean. He just needs I, that breakthrough moment, you think? I, I think so. And, and the fact that, and you said it, the fact that he's had so many great finishes at this young age in majors is a testament to his ball striking, number one. Number two, it's a testament to what a great player he is. And there's so many other young, great players who haven't sniffed what he's done in his early years. Not even sniffed, right? Well, his ball striking is going to keep him into every major. Yeah. No matter what, he hits it long enough. He hits it certainly straight enough. Every major, he's going to be, he's going to be legitimately a contender. It all comes down to his putting ability. So can, it, can I say this? I... I I feel like, like watching that, and, and I'm somewhat, I'm somewhat affected because I, I have chipping problems myself, right? But those guys make more mistakes full swing than they do. They they're faced with some of the most unbelievable short game shots around the greens, and they're pulling them off. Like like Mito on on one hole in the back nine, he he pulled it left when. All the way down the hill. Was on the, yeah, it was, uh, he was playing 14. He hit it on 15 T. I mean, yeah. and, and and it's in the rough, and he lobs it up there to like two feet. I mean, like it blows my mind how how they just don't screw up those shots. And on the other hand, you know, those guys were hitting some awful full swing shots. Like Zalatoris on the par five, number 13, I think, hmm. you know, had a two. 30 from the middle of the fairway and almost hits it on the next green over there <laughs> to the right. And it's, you know, they were snap hooking some T balls. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm amazed at just how much they don't have issues with really difficult short shots. It just blows my mind. I'm going to throw one more name out, and then we, then we should probably give uh, JT his due one more time. But Cameron Young, yeah, big big uh, development oper- move for him. Yep. Oh, I totally. think so. Yeah, getting in the mix, getting comfortable. Um, yeah, his dad's a PGA member Correct. in that section. Yep. So that you know, I, I think any major, any tournament, it's got to be a little something there uh, as far as the PGA Championship is concerned, but. Um, man, what a nice, I like his action. Um, although I think he's got to work in his bunker play a little cause he had a pretty brutal bunker shot and I'm making that double, uh, was it on 16? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was a shame there, but, um, I think he's going to, you're going to see him in the mix again. And, you know, my last thing on uh, Willie Z is just, I think he, he's got it all physically, but at that level, that razor thin, you know, is it the mind? Is it, is it underneath the, the, the uh, placket or the, what do you call that the, on the shirt, Andy? Yeah, your placket. Your placket, right, yeah. It's a Is placket, it, Bobby. Yeah, what, what's, behind, what's behind the placket? Um, that, that tells a lot about that. I think he's got it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he's incredible. Um, you know, I'm back, back to uh, Cam. Um, I think Cam's incredible. Will's incredible. Um, Mito was incredible. But I, I really, I mean, up until a few holes left, Cam was tied for the lead. Yep. Did you ever think Cam was going to walk away as the winner? I actually did. I, I, I thought he was. I thought he was going to be the one to win. He looked like he was. Yep. But I, I don't know. I think he falls under that predestined to take his lumps and and walk away with the experience of playing great in a major. And without, then until until he learns and what have you. Yeah. Yep. Because because you know segueing to JT, I mean, he was he was so mentally appeared to be so mentally tough and engaged in this whole thing. And I think at the end of the day, that's why he walks away with the, with the Wanamaker because he's been there before, like Pam Baldessari says, you know, those stats, those, those are there for a reason and, and they matter at the end of the day. I mean, it was just so striking 14 with all the zeros. I mean, you know, that was uh it's got to be something. I mean, that's the everything from like whatever sport you play that, you know, the Larry Bird, you know, being there at Michael Jordan, um, it just makes a difference. For Speaking sure. of the Celtics, let's go Celtics. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go Celtics. <laughs> so I got, uh, I got one, one more topic as we're, we're, we're definitely on the 18th tee box at this point, boys, but uh, Jack Nicholas is being sued by his company. Any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I read a little bit about it. Um, it sounds like, like, you know, the people who acquired the rights to the Jack Nicholas companies are not happy that Jack has a lackadaisical approach to what he does and who he does it with. And I think they're trying to protect their investment. And Jack's kind of an old guy that he probably doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. That was my center centered around some appearances and things of that nature that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Bobby, anything bad? I do not. <laughs> okay. All right. Then in that case, you've already, Andy's already thrown a don't be that guy at us earlier in the show. So it, uh, it ended up being you and me, Alan. So, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> hey, final thoughts, 18th green, putting the flag in Mr. Heidorn. Okay. My final thought is, is, just how important, you know, the, the ability to, to bring out your best golf when the heat's on is just so important. It's so much more important than mechanics and positions and, and all that stuff. I mean, the guy, the guy who, who has the heart in the, in the fortitude is the guy who's going to come out on top. Bobby. I'm going to do a little twist here and do a little promo tease for next week's uh, Golf Talk Live and get ready for, hey, Tiger, you need to move your mock back. <laughs> but we're going to have Steve Scott on the show next week. Uh, excited to have Steve here and talk about, I mean, talk about a guy that's part of golf history that, you know, what happened at Pumpkin Ridge. And he's been doing a lot of different things in golf lately. He's a PGA member. So uh, 
just thought I'd give it a little tease for next has, week. Has his own fellow pod, another podcaster. Uh, and obviously, as you mentioned, he just released a, a book about the yeah. Pumpkin Ridge experience. Exactly. So uh, be some good chattering uh, and discussions next week. Tune in. My final thought is if you are, if you are aspiring to be a tour professional, you have to appreciate the hard work and unusual circumstances that players go through and specifically. And I, I would like to get this young man on, on. So if he's listening, please, you're welcome. Corn Ferry tour player, James Nichols was the ninth alternate when he finally got a phone call and traveled overnight to try to make it to the corn Ferry tour event. I don't even know where it was that particular week. He literally ran out of the airport while his clubs were coming on the carousel because they weren't coming fast enough. He, arrived at the the golf course he borrows clubs from the club pro as well as a driver from the assistant pro throws on uh shoes while standing there five minutes before his tea time and stripes it so james nichols do be that guy keep chasing the dream and uh i, I love the story if you haven't seen it you got to look it up that was awesome that was a good one yep andy <laughs> don't get a wicket short and go, wicked. go get them <laughs> if you're gonna play in your club championship hit it long and straight because because being in a three-month slump just ain't gonna do it <laughs> have a good one folks make more jameson You only have one opportunity to sell your golf property. Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30 plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs. Whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting, be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member, Alan DePew, today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.